Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. Hello, and welcome back to my conversation with my guest co host, Jennifer Loudon. And she's here, and we're going to be having these ongoing conversations for a bit. And remember, she is the author of several books, including the Women's Retreat book and the Life Organizer. And she's also a teacher and a speaker. And I'm just so thrilled that she said yes to coming on and being my co-host so we can have these great conversations. And today we're going to talk about how we can stay awake and take action on what hurts the world while still taking care of ourselves. Jen, hello and welcome back. Wow, thank you so much for letting me talk with you for these times. I really appreciate it, Corinne. Um, this question is dear and dear to my heart. It's really the the leading edge of my work. And I would probably devote myself no, I shouldn't say that. I was gonna say I should I would devote myself to this question full time, but people aren't interested. <laughs> But I don't think that's true for two reasons. One, I love all the work that I do, and I think it's all part of the whole. And um, and I think people are interested. They're just afraid. They're afraid to face into the problems of the world and the, the size of them. And so we, we turn away and we put our heads down. Mm-hmm. And I really, I'm really curious how we can develop the skills and the fortitude in community to do something about the things that, that, that cause us pain. Well, you know, one of the things I want to bring up because you said, oh, well, uh, people aren't interested. Well, you know, one of the myths that we have about that can help shatter that is, or one of the pieces of evidence that we can help shatter that myth is, you know, our friend Brene Brown, right? Uh. Here's a woman who was a vulnerability and shame researcher. Nobody wanted to talk about that. Right. And she's brought that discussion to the forefront. And, um, you know, and it's, 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 it's more out there and people are really hungering for it. I mean, it's obvious just with how, how popular her TED talks are. Mm-hmm. Right. So it, while it may not be this sexy topic and people are kind of like, oh, cause I don't think people really know what to do. That's true. But you know what Renee did beautifully and I watched her do it is she, repackaged. She rebranded. Mm-hmm. She doesn't call herself a shame researcher anymore. Vulnerability is a very different, she, it's, it's the same work. It's totally, she didn't do anything dishonest, mm-hmm. but she flipped it. So you're looking at, oh, vulnerability. Oh, wow. Versus, and underneath that, and the reason we're not vulnerable is because of our shame. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to think, how can we flip how we see taking action on the things that concern us and frighten us. How can we flip that? What's the, what's the, what's the flip side of it? So here's something because um, that I've really kind of toyed with, you know, cause here I live in Davis, California. So, you know, it's an affluent, highly well-educated town. I mean, the number of PhDs one year, when one year, like probably about eight years ago, I went skiing, cross country skiing with a group of girlfriends and there are about nine of us. And in this group of girlfriends, there were PhDs, doctors, lawyers. I have a master's degree, a couple of other women's master's degree. One woman had a bachelor's degree, right? And she goes, oh, <laughs> I mean, that was, you know, and now since then she's gotten her master's, but that's, so that's like the, <laughs> skiing with you again. <laughs> you know, that's like the level of my, my community, right? We are a privileged community and to understand that, but, and I've worked also when I was at the college, I was in an inner city community college right, where a lot of the inner city schools fed into this community college. So I've been inside the Ivory Gates and I've been on the outside and I grew up on the outside of the Ivory Gates. So, but how can you go about, and when you talk about what hurts the world, right, to say that in my community, there's not pain and suffering, that would be a lie. There is. We are just really good at hiding it, right, in my community. And so one of the ways that I go about right now with my given circumstances, because I have kids, I have four kids, two are still at home, you know, and, and I'm committed to, to being a part of this community. So one of the ways that I can help with the pain in the world is by, well, one is this having this radio show and not everybody can have a radio show, but two is I run the swim team that I run, 
right? Because that's my way to change the world. If I can help, you know, these little people to be more, more, more emotionally intelligent, to practice cur- courage, you know, to, to learn how to get rid of this inner critic that we all have, whatever. And the same thing with their parents. I think that's a way I can help the world because who knows? And I mean, I know because my husband's been coaching for so long and then he sees these kids who go off and they become leaders or, you know, actually one of the pilots on the Virgin uh, Galactic uh, spaceship was one of his former swimmers. Right. Oh no, the pilot that died? Actually not. He originally thought so, but it was the other pilot who's now in the hospital. Right. Um, you know, but he's had, we've had a lot of kids who've gone on into the military and mm-hmm. served our country. So you never, so it's like I could, I used to discount and go, oh, I'm just a swim coach. You know, what am I really doing? But it's, it's like I look at it as this is the soil that I'm helping grow stuff. And that's one way. Now, not everybody can be in that leadership position. The other way that I help you know, with the hurt in the world is that when I go to the grocery store, I keep my cell phone in my pocket and I talk to the bagger and the clerk because it's like for them to be able to be seen and heard, I think is so important, mm-hmm. you know, so that that's another way that I can show up and help the hurt. Now, you know, that's not sexy. That's not me going to Africa. That's not with, you know, doing so many other things, but it's what I can do right now with what I have. So that's how I show up. Um, but I think that's different than the conversation that you were having. No, no, it's the same conversation. And sexy is, is, is so misleading and stops so many people from serving. Oh, I have, I'm, I feel very passionate about this because when we, when we frame it as sexy, I have to start a nonprofit. I have to go to Africa. Mm-hmm. We usually, we usually a get overwhelmed and don't do anything, or we do something that's not actually of highest service. We do something that's serving our ego more than what really needs to be served. There is so much shadow when we go to help other because we think other is not us and we Mm -hmm. think we know better. And you can look at the history of, oh, say the World Bank. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, We can look at the history of a ton of um, very well-meaning, well-funded nonprofits and NGOs who have very little to show for their efforts because they didn't know how to listen and get out of their own ego about how they serve. They went in with their mission, their idea of what the other, I'm making quote marks in the air, needed. So we do not want to do that in our own lives. I mean, I say over and over again when someone asks me about service, the first thing you don't want to do is start a nonprofit. (laughs) There's plenty of nonprofits out there that can use your effort. The second thing you want to do is look at what is possible that fits in your life that doesn't drain you or isn't attached to a story of what you should be doing, mm-hmm. right? And, and I, actually, I have a caveat to that that I'll come back to in a moment. But your examples are beautiful and heartfelt and real. And so many of us shy away from doing what we could do because we don't think it's enough or it's big enough or it's sexy enough. Or the other reason we don't do it is because it fits our gifts and we discount our gifts. Mm-hmm. And I was doing this. Um, I was thinking, you know, one of, one of my gifts is to write about life and write about what I'm learning and what I see other people learning. And I was discounting that as a way to serve. You know, I was thinking, I actually was planning a trip to India with my daughter. This was a, a number of years ago now. And we were going to work with a school um, and I was going to do leadership work with the team, all of whom were first generation um, leaving their villages, first generation being in any kind of leadership position. So they were pretty freaked out, these women. And Lily was going to work with the kids, um, which she's had a lot of experience with, um, even as a young person. And we decided at the kind of the last minute not to go because she had MRSA from the soccer fields. Um, and we were afraid for her immune system um, because we would be going to India in the summer and, you know, mm-hmm. it was a good, really good chance we would get sick. So, but it was so funny when that we pulled the plug on it and I kind of stepped away. It was the, all about my ego. I wanted to say my daughter and I were going to India. I mm-hmm. wanted to get something cool on her school transcripts. <laughs> I mean, and not that we weren't going to do something good, but just the, the carbon footprint that we would have and the money that we would spend, because they weren't paying us. We would have to pay our own expenses to do all of this. I could have done so much better, good, more good in the world, staying home and donating that money. Mm-hmm. And it was such a slap in the face to me, such a wake up call in a good way. Like, oh, I wanted to do something sexy. Mm-hmm. I could probably serve a lot better in other ways, but they don't make me look good. Mm-hmm. So, so then I want to go back to the caveat, which is while we want to do what's, what we're passionate about and what, what fits with our gifts, there, 
the big elephant in the living room for me is climate change. And when we continue to live the way that most Westerners live, and I totally include myself in this, we're always working to make our carbon footprint smaller, but we've got a ways to go still. We are contributing to the issue of our times. And I really think of climate change the same way that my parents thought of World War II, that we all need to be in this together, giving it so much attention so deeply changing the way that we live, the resources that we live, the way we travel, the way we consume. And so that's very uncomfortable. <laughs> it means giving up so much of our worldview of what we're entitled to as Westerners. And so that does take us out of our comfort zone. And often we don't want to do it. And so we throw up our hands and say, well, I can't do anything about climate change because look, look what's happening in China. <laughs> uh, you know, look what's happening, and it doesn't matter what I'm doing. And we don't want to look at the facts of how we consume and how we live, how we grow our food, how we build our houses, um, and the amount of energy we, we, we use through consumption. Not just driving our cars and heating our houses, but the stuff we buy um, is directly a huge number in the climate change issue. You know, and, and that's really huge. And instead of thinking that, the problem's too big and what's the difference that we make, right? It's that small thing. So last night we were getting in the car to go to swim practice and one of my daughters left a light on in the house and my mm -hmm. youngest, my seventh grader is like, you know, of course, cause they're going to, you know, be at war with each other. But, you know, it's like, <laughs> well, you didn't turn off the light. And, and my, my older daughter's like, well, I couldn't see if I had the light off. And, you know, there was just this constant, my younger daughter, it was so important to her to to be respectful. I think it's an important value of hers mm -hmm. to be respectful of the resources of our planet that she got out of the car and went in the house and turned off the light, right? And she'll do this like even with water because in California, we're in a drought. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and if I have something that's going on in the sink too long, she just comes over and just turns it off. Yeah. Where, where you know, more often than not, especially when it's their sister, there's this like scorecard that goes right? Like, I'm not going to go turn it off. You did that. Why would I turn it off? But her value, I think, is this makes a difference, which is very different than, oh, well, we're, we're in such a huge drought. How can turning off the water really be helpful? Exactly. So we go back to what we were talking about in our last episode about the stories that we tell ourselves and the stories that we're telling ourselves about the planet have to change. And I, my husband and I, he works in climate change and, and he works in conservation for a small nonprofit. And so we talk about this all the time. And we're so fascinated by how we can create a narrative that people see climate change as, the, as, world, as their World War II, as our generation's World War II, because people went from totally living the life that was all about them and their ambitions and their family to making great sacrifices for a number of years and some for some people forever you know they lost loved ones they're you know and how can we frame something that is so much more distant to us and is so much even a drought like the drought that you're living through which is right in your face it's still hard to see it as probably deeply influenced by the way that we're living and affecting the planet. How do we frame that story? So that's one of the questions that I'm really interested in. And, and I'm really interested, how do we frame the story within the personal growth world? Because one of the things that's really on my nerves right now is how the personal growth world is still so often the leaders in it are still talking about abundance. And I fly all over the world to see my friends or look at the new BMW SUV I bought that gets 12 miles the freaking gallon. And they're on in their blogs and social media talking about this stuff. And I'm like, you're a leader. You're a leader in consciousness. And you're not talking about consumption and climate change. Or if you do, you talk about the fact you change the light bulbs in your house. I'm really glad you change the light bulbs in your house. That's something important. But you're a leader. You've got to be talking about this in, in a bigger way. And you've got to be tying it back to how our souls are feeling. Because I think in a, at a soul level, we're all breaking. Our hearts are breaking. Our souls are breaking because we know we're changing things forever. For the, the planet, for other animals, for our, our kids' lives. Not our grandkids' lives. Our kids' lives. Well, do you think that these these leaders, right, in the personal growth world that go on and talk about jetting around and all this right. stuff. I'm flying down to LA to have margaritas with my friend. It's like, no, no. <laughs> but don't you don't you think that they have a different um 
level, like what they view success to be, right? And the story that they're trying to craft and the people that they're trying to get to buy in is it's that lifestyle, yeah. right? Like this is success once you hit this instead of, okay, let's think about that. Let's take that how many more steps further of if I do that, if I buy, you know, and and if I get every new iPhone upgrade, <laughs> what does that do to our, our planet? Right. And there's that YouTube video. I can't remember. It was kind of like, what is it? The cycle of, you know, a product. Right. But if you're constantly getting, and, and, you know, and I, I have three Mac, Apple products sitting in my face right now as we speak. Right. But I don't get every iPhone update. I don't get every new laptop update. Um, you know, and I try, you know, like I have an iPhone 4S and I'm getting the six. Um, but we are in that consumption world. And that's, that is what's sexy. I mean, that's what's, that's, when you can do that, right, you have arrived. I mean, and that's the culture. I mean, you go down to some of the Silicon Valley startups or those big corporations, those brand name corporations, what's the car that you're driving and how often are you getting a new one? Yeah. That's so, the status. Yeah. So we need to start a new story. And I went, and if, if I looked at the personal growth world, because that's what I've been in for 25 years, to start that story and to take it up and to say, I'm talking about soul. I'm talking about God. I'm talking about higher power. And I'm still talking about manifesting an iPhone 6. Come on, people. We need to be talking about manifesting a whole planet. We already know there's enough carbon in the um, atmosphere that severe weather changes are part of our life for probably hundreds, if not thousands of years. That, that ship has sailed. We are actually trying to keep the carbon down to the point where we, where whole countries can stay above water where we can feed the people that are alive now. I mean, that's really where we're at. And if you're debate the science with me, then you should hang up right now and don't listen to this because the science is irrefutable. And I'm happy to, no, I'm not happy to show it to you. You can Google it yourself. (laughs) Um, So it's not about climate change deniers. I have no time for that. I have time for how do we start a new story? How do we, how, and how do we do it without falling into despair? You know, you can hear my voice and I get more and more strident. That's not sustainable. I've got to seduce you into a new story. I've got to seduce you into planning a victory garden like we did in World War II. I've got to seduce you into how do we drive less? How do we change how much square footage we have in our houses? How do we decide that I can actually live without an iPhone? Perhaps. I mean, for some of us, like someone like me who's directionally challenged, (laughs) It might be a bad idea for me not to have a phone that has a GPS on it. (laughs) But that's what I'm curious about. How do we bring our gifts together and how do we stay, how do we deal with our despair so we don't shut down? So how do we do that? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I think the best, the first thing that comes to my mind is a wonderful book by, I'm looking, looking, looking on my Go, where is it? Where is it? Come here, baby. Where's that book? Oh, shoot. And I'll have the link. And if you can't find it now, I'll have the link on the show notes. Okay. It's, um, uh, God, I'm just like, as soon as I said that and looked over because I knew, thought it would be there, I didn't have to call it up in my memory. It's like, it's like looking for Google when you're at a dinner party. <laughs> and if you didn't have Google, you would be like, I'm going to remember that fact. Um, it's by Mary Piper who wrote um, the wonderful book, um, Surviving, uh, Reviving Ophelia. And it's her most recent book. And I believe it's called The Green Boat. And it's about her story of what she did when she was despairing about climate change. And what she did, and she lives in Nebraska in the Sand Hill Crane country. And the Sand Hill Crane Reserve was threatened by the um, XL pipeline. And they were against all odds. And she is a busy professional with a very high profile career and a therapy practice. But she organized with her neighbors, people she'd never met, people in her community, and they Uh, successfully stopped the pipeline going through the Sandhill Crane country. And then uh, about a week after they successfully stopped it, they were overturned at a federal level, pretty much in skullduggery, um, not particularly legally, and were defeated. And I don't know if the pipeline has since gone through the Sandhill Crane country. I should know that. Um, So it's a story not of triumph, but it's a story of I refuse to give up. I will be in action, but I will do it in community. I will not suffer this alone. And I think that's what we have to do. And it goes back to our friendship conversation, our last conversation. We're hungry to connect. We're lonely and we're despairing. So can we bring the two together? Oh, wait a minute. Those people are going to suck me dry. 
If I volunteer, they're going to suck me dry. So we have to work on our boundaries and our, our ability to say, no, I'm sorry, I can't do any more than that. I can do this. And I think that's where a lot of it falls down. We're afraid to be vulnerable and connected and disappointed and suck dry. Well, that boundaries thing, right? People, we, we, we suck at it. I mean, I can be really good at boundaries. And, <laughs> and you're not around. As long as I can keep you at an arm's distance, I can be good at boundaries. Well, it, it's, it's why we go so easy into um, all or nothing, right? Yeah. So it's like, oh, well, uh, I, I, can't, I don't want to have to like actually do work around boundaries. So I'm just not going to show up because that's going to be my boundary. I'm not going to get involved. Right. And and it takes courage and then it takes a reinforcement of boundaries. And I'm always reminding myself because I'm pretty good with boundaries, but um, I also expect other people to respect it. I mean, that's what that's what gets me in trouble. And I have to remind myself, Corinne, these are your fence posts. They're your responsibility to keep them up because people are going to put try to push them down. And that's the self-talk that I have to go in. But that boundary piece is really important. And then as you were talking, Jen, I was thinking of um Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, right? And Simon Sinek was on here years ago and he was talking about, you know, that book and, you know, we have meaning in one of three ways or sometimes it's just the mold of all three ways. But this is from Victor Frankl. You go, you get meaning from being in a loving relationship, being of service and going through tremendous struggle, Mm -hmm. right? And I think anytime you're in a loving relationship, it's tremendous struggle and (laughs) you're being of service, right? Mm -hmm. But when you think about having a purpose, right, of how you can be of service and how you can help change the world. And when you're talking about this climate, you know, climate change that's happening and you can get involved in something, but then having the boundaries to say, okay, it doesn't have to be that all or nothing. Like I have to run over my family to be involved in this quest. Oh, right. Right. Or I need to be a martyr. I mean, this is me 20 years ago. I've got to be a martyr and not take care of myself and be so proud of myself that I didn't have time to go to the bathroom today. Yes. No, we want to change that story. And that's why the tagline on my website, we're we're changing it in the new year, but the tagline for the last three years almost has been savor and serve and bringing the two together instead of this dichotomy that is so old school. I either have to give it all and be the martyr and I'm so proud I didn't go to the bathroom today or it's all about me. It's all about me. And, and the, the day has to just go the way I want. And it's all about my abundance and my family and my kids and my work. And it's like, no, neither one of them are satisfying or sustainable. Mm-hmm. We have to bring the two together. We have to say, okay, you know, I'm somebody, let's say, who has low energy or I'm somebody who has three little kids at home. So no, I'm not going to go to the the march in Washington against climate change. But you know what? There's actually something I can do to online, writing these letters or um, you know, writing a piece for my local newspaper about why a carbon tax is a good idea. Or just reading Naomi Klein's new book, This Changes Everything about climate change and justice and capitalism. It doesn't make you a communist. It doesn't mean you have to you know, change everything right now, but it means I can start to open my mind to it. That's taking action too. Yeah. And I think that goes back to like knowing what your strengths are and where yes. your priorities are. Yeah. Right. And then how do you weave this into your life? And also knowing why you want to take action. So we go back to the beginning of the conversation, which is, are you doing it to look good? Are you doing it because you know the right way and you want the other to do it? You know, the other might be your your family at Thanksgiving who don't know anything about climate change. So this would be me when I was younger. I'm going to give you a good lecture about it. <laughs> and you can totally hear how I get into that mode, right? So, so we have to relax. We have to be willing to be vulnerable and humble and say, I don't know if this is going to work. I don't know. I don't know. And I think that's really difficult for us when we move into service. And I've been reading this fabulous um I guess it's more of an autobiography than a memoir by a woman. She's, she's passed on now. She's dead. Her name is Joan Bog, Bogder. I'm, I know it's, I don't have it out here with me, but it's either B-O-D-G-E-R or B-O-G-D-E-R. But she was a, a storyteller and um, worked in, in, in education in the 60s with um, black kids who were in the ghetto. And she's white, or she was white. And she just tells these gorgeous, amazing stories of doing this work and the mistakes that she made because of her story about what those kids needed. 
She tells this one story about how she's so concerned because this is preschool. She actually started the first Head Start preschool in Nyack, New York, without before Head Start existed. Um, so it became Head Start, the first Head Start preschool. And she cannot get these kids to understand what color is. She can't wow. get them to say, this is blue or this is red. And then she, so she calls a well-known um, child psychologist. Um, well, they didn't really call him a child psychologist back then, but a well-known psychologist who was black. And the woman takes her head off because well-meaning Joan has not ever said to these kids, it's a mixed race They've brought, uh, preschool. They brought in uh, white kids that are um, parents. It's a co-op. So that they, but they pretended that nobody is black. Race has been the issue that will not be mentioned. And so because of that, these kids are afraid to name any color because they think it's not okay that they're black. Oh, wow. So, and she was totally well-meaning. That was what we did in the early 60s, right? Let's pretend everybody's the same. Men are the same. Women are the same. Black people are the same. White people are the same. Red people are the same. Everyone's the same. Uh-uh. Doesn't work. What's not named Mm-hmm. lines everything. So, so when she, she immediately changed it and she went into school the next day and read a story and said, whose arm with the black characters in it, whose arm is this color? And within weeks they could name other colors. Wow. Yeah. So we have to do the same thing with ourselves. Where are we being blind? Where are we thinking we know the answer? Where are we willing to say, I don't know what to do about climate change. I don't know what to do about a million hungry American kids in our country right now. I don't know what to do about my neighbor who is lonely. And I don't know what to do about helping my mom when she's bored and she has Alzheimer's and she wants to get out and I've got work to do. But I can stay with it. I can be with it and do what's possible for me in that moment, which sometimes might not be anything. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that, I mean, I guess, and this is one of my core values, but... I think about, okay, maybe I don't know. And so part of me gets shame and I want to hide away, right? Because that's my own self-protectionism. But then when I can lean into my value of love of learning, it's like, Mm -hmm. well, there's these books, right? I mean, you mentioned some and I'm going to put the links on the show notes. There are these books. And like when we can give ourselves that permission to say, okay, we don't know. Like I don't know a whole lot about climate change, Mm -hmm. right? But now that we're having this dialogue, I'm going to be more interested in it and learn about it right? And, and there's things, I mean, we have Google, which is an amazing tool that we didn't have 20 years ago. We can even Google climate change, right? Just like you had mentioned, there's, there's research out there, go Google it and then learn about it. But I think for somebody like me who can be this overachiever, like, you know, if I'm smart, I'm going to know it all, right? That is, I should know this. That is such a toxic belief because then it doesn't allow us to show up. It creates shrinkage for me. Yes, it's beautiful and so powerful. So we have stories about service. We have stories about changing our life to live in a more sustainable way. So a beautiful, smart, amazing, powerful place is just to start looking at those stories. Oh, I'm going to be overwhelmed. Oh, it's going to be too hard. Oh, my husband won't do anything. It's going to cause stress in our marriage. Oh, well, the kids, you know, it's hard enough to raise them as it is and get them into a good college. I'm not about to take away their their ski vacation and all their toys and not buy them everything they want for Christmas. You know, all we just start to listen to those. Oh, start to question them. I have to know everything about climate change before I can do anything. I have to know everything about hungry kids before I can see what would it be like to help the kids in my my island get fed or mm-hmm. in my neighborhood or my town. Oh, I can't do that. That's not okay. Well, let me just sit with that. Let me get curious about it and let me be humble about it. And let me know that it's going to bring up stuff in me that I don't like. Joan did not like seeing the fact that she was creating a school where the kids were afraid it wasn't okay to be black. Mm -hmm. That was her absolute opposite intention. She wanted those kids to feel black is beautiful. And that was before anyone said that term. Mm -hmm. She was approaching it in this beautiful way before she didn't go in there like so many of us do and go, I know what to do with these kids. She actually sat on the steps of their church for weeks with picture books and told them stories and observed them before she started building this preschool. So she did lots of things right, but we still are going to have blind spots. And that is so humbling and shame producing that it can stop us from doing anything. Well, I think the most important thing though that we can do is circle back, right? Especially when you're in a leadership position and, and you have this great why and you have these great intentions 
But when we go out and try to execute our ideas, right, it's about, okay, now I need to check in. Is Are we heading in that direction or is there a gap between what we're aspiring to, to achieve and what's actually happening? Yeah, but that's so hard for us to do as humans. The more And the more we have invested, the harder it is to do, right? I mean, it takes a tremendous amount of humbleness to say, I'm wrong. I mean, I was just talking to my daughter, and she has a minor, a major in psychology and a minor in early education and um, society, and she's not liking the minor. I'm like, okay, drop it. But I've already taken classes in it. I'm like, honey, you're 20 years old. <laughs> Mm-hmm. drop it. Let's find another minor. Or maybe you won't even have a minor. She's almost done with her degree and she still has, you know, a lot. She's still just a junior. I'm like, you can just play. You can take other things. Maybe, th- you know, come on. But we get that. We get so attached to knowing, to what I've invested, to thinking we have to have the answers, to think we have to be the savior of the world. Mm-hmm. Then the other thing I want to mention, of course, is compassion fatigue. <laughs> Right. Say more about that. Compassion fatigue. What's that? We listen to the news and we're like, oh, my God, you know, the world is burning. Species are disappearing every day. Um, Children are starving. Syria has, I don't know, 1.2 million, 1.5 million Syrian uh, Iraq refugees. There's nothing I can do. I'm just going to go watch um, Orange is the New Black. (laughs) Right. There's nothing I can do. So why should I bother? And, or it hurts too much because lots of us listening are, are highly sensitive people and we feel, and I am, and we feel the pain of the world. We feel the pain of the pictures of somebody might show on Facebook of an abandoned animal or, you know, um, you know, what's happened in Ferguson and Missouri. And, you know, we're just like, oh, I just can't bear it. And if that's how, if you're having those reactions, it is imperative that you practice learning to be stable and to protect yourself without shutting down. And by stable, I mean to have some kind of personal practices that allow you to feel rooted in the moment, in reality, in safety. Mm-hmm. Um, I teach women this a lot in my courses, how to feel safe, how to feel safe, because otherwise then your brain and your nervous system can't take action. You really are in a state of shutdown. So we have to learn to stabilize ourselves, and then we have to learn to choose wisely what information we take in. It's okay to edit out a lot of the world's misery and decide that your issue is climate change, like I have, or your issue is hungry children, or your issue is animals. You know, a lot of people do animal rights. And it's okay to say, this is what I can do about this, to keep checking in, is this effective, is this true, is there other areas I could stretch into, but not to think you're taking on the enchilada of the world. That's unbearable. And we're so hyper um, connected right now and will be probably for the foreseeable future. We have to protect ourselves and we have to have practices of deep self-care that renew us, but then not hide in those, not Mm -hmm. isolate ourselves, not make it all about us and our personal um, well-being and abundance. So I call that staying grounded, right? And instead of living in this black and white world where either you're totally involved or you're not at all, right? It's how can you stay grounded, you know, that and that fits into the life that you have and the responsibilities that you have, right? And um, and, in pain, like I really, I work on and it, it does take some conscious energy about how can I be deliberate? How can I serve? And again, whether it's, you know, at the checkout or my yeah. daughter, my seventh grader is playing junior high basketball, right? And I'm a coach and I understand what it takes to lead a group. And so now that I'm a parent in this situation, how can I support this coach? Yes. Well, one of the things that he needs is he needs somebody to coordinate drivers to all these away games, right? Well, that's something I can do very easily behind my computer, right? I can create a sign up genius, send it out via email. Parents can sign up. The other side, and this is something I just went through in the last day, was um, as a parent, and I see parents struggling with this, like, oh, I have to be at every single game, yes, yes. right? And then that that like burdensome, like I'm too overwhelmed. And yesterday, and I checked in with my daughter to see if, if she wanted, and she had said no. And my older daughter and I were talking about this after when she got home from school, and we were like, well, we're not quite sure if you know Elle really was okay with me not going. But part of it is that I want her to be responsible with the information that she gives out, right? So if she says, yeah. no, mom, it's totally fine, then part of it is owning that because I'm not going to play those kind of games, right? right? Well, what do you really mean? Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, and I told her that I might not be coming because she said it was fine. 
And I checked in and I was just done. I was fried. And um, and I still had some work to do. So I finished that and I didn't go to the game. I knew they had plenty of drivers. My daughter was going to be fine. She said I didn't need to go. I stayed home. I fed myself back up, right? That is really hard in my community because if you are a good, quote, good parent, you go to every single sporting event, right? Are you, are you ready for me to rail on that? Or should I just, like- <laughs> go for it. I think the, the the story of perfectionism and hyper parenting in particular, but it's also the ideal worker. It's through, it's riddling our world. It's exhausting us to the point where we cannot pay attention to what's really important. And when you know what you just pointed to, if we just as educated, smart women work on saying, "I'm a human being." I'm a sovereign being who chooses my life. I've decided that I'm going to work on this issue, which means that I'm not going to be working on these issues, which means that I'm not going to be showing up in the way that you think I should show up as the perfect mother, parent, worker. I get to decide that. And there may be consequences for that. There may not be. But we are so caught up in a false story of what it means to be human right now. It is unsustainable. It is, it is dehumanizing. It's awful. And it, it, the parenting part in particular... There was an article about the New York Times on Sunday exactly about this. There's a wonderful book about it called Overwhelmed by um, Mm -hmm. Bridget She she was on my show. I love her. Um, Really, really worth reading about this. And then, or shorter, just read the New York Times article, not by her, by someone else. And um, I I, I looked, I read the article, I looked at Bob, I said, I'm so glad I'm not a parent of a young child anymore. Mm -hmm. I thought it was bad when Lily was coming up. Oh my God. And attachment parenting was really big in Santa Barbara. (laughs) Oh my God. I remember walking into a, like a mommy and me thing. And the, I was a little bit late and I was already feeling bad about that. And then the, the, the woman who was running it said, you need to meet every single one of your child's needs <laughs> or there will be hell to pay later. And I thought, I want to hit you. You, you, are, you are wrong. You are bad. You are evil for uh-huh. saying that. So yes, we have to challenge and change that story. We can. We are the culture. So we change the story that our kids have to do every event and be con- and we have to be in the car all the time or they're going to be behind and not get into a good college. The studies and the information that's coming out is actually showing we're raising kids who can't handle real life. We're raising kids who don't have resiliency. We're not raising kids who are going to be able to be successful, ha- happy human beings. We're raising overscheduled, anxious, um, like greyhounds. <laughs> Mm-hmm. who freeze if they don't have a sweater on. <laughs> well, and then that leads back to your compassion fatigue, right? Because yes. we're so exhausted from not having a boundaries in our own lives that the things that are really important to us that, that you know, that connect our heart, right? Helping others, right? Or being of service. We don't give ourselves that permission to go do because we're exhausted with this idea over here that we're supposed to aspire to. That's exactly right. Thank you. That is a clear, crisp, non-shrill way to say it. And so I feel like we're, we're missing the forest for the trees. And instead of working, and again, you know, my personal issue, climate change, instead of working to, pr- to preserve a planet where more people can continue to survive, let alone thrive, we're signing Billy up for another sport and stressing out if we're not making perfect homemade cupcakes for every meat, mm-hmm. you know, or, or organically funny shaped, you know, perfectly cut oranges or I don't know, whatever your thing is, you know, and it's just, it's insane. And uh, we have to stop. And we are the people listening who ha- we're on the cutting edge. If you're listening to this, you're on the cutting edge of consciousness. You're on the cutting edge of education and being educated. You can stop it by not participating in it. You don't have to be shrill about it. You don't have to write a manifesto. You just start questioning your story and having this kind of conversations that Corinne's having with her kids. Well, and I mean, you know, there was some very conscious conversations in my own head. And then I even processed it with my 14 year old. Like, what do you think? Do you think Elle is okay? And she goes, I don't know. And I said, I don't know either. And I checked in and I was just done, Jen. Like, yeah. And to think that I was going to drive 20 minutes to the next town to go sit in, in the bleachers to watch her play and then to drive back and then, you know, cook dinner and then go on the pool deck last night. You know, I wasn't going to be filled up where I could show up here. Right. I wasn't going to be filled up so I could do my job last night. And I just said, she's okay. They have plenty of drivers. I'm going to give myself a break. 
Yeah, but we even have to frame it as I'm giving myself a break. You know, even that makes me sad. Like, wow, this is inhuman what I'm asking myself to do. Why, Why is this even on the table? You know, I mean, it'd be different if, you know, oh, my God, there's no drivers and there's no way the game's going to happen if I don't drive. Oh, shoot, I'm going to have to rally myself. But I know that I can I have time to recover. I can move things around so I can recover later or the next day. But to have this constant bar of being everything to everybody, I mean, it, it, it's, it's causing deep cultural problems. It's cutting us off from ourselves, from each other and from what's happening in the world. You know, and then we can't take the news in and we can't, we can't face what's happening with the planet because it's too overwhelming. And so we just go back and say, okay, well, at least I can make the cupcakes. <laughs> well, but then I think it goes back to like, you know, when we do decide like how we can change the world, right? And what is, what is that arena that we want to step into that is aligned with our values and our strengths and our priorities and be able to give with the, with the appropriate boundaries, right? Because the, mm-hmm. the other thing that I think is so important is that compassion has boundaries. Compassionate people have boundaries. Yeah, it's not idiot compassion. I don't have compassion for everybody. It doesn't mean I hand you my bank book. Yeah, and so like having those boundaries, and that's why I'm always reminding myself, Corinne, these are your fence posts. Yeah, you I'm know? allowed to have fence posts. Oh, not only allowed to, I must have them. I must have them, and then I need to make sure that I keep them up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and not and not make apologies for them, and mm-hmm. not not cope them in shame, right? Mm-hmm. In snowdrifts of shame, but like, no, this is who, this is what I'm capable of. These are my values, and you know what? I'm human. I'm not a computer. I'm not Google. I'm not a robot. I'm human, and humans actually need downtime mm-hmm. and sleep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they need to do things they care about or they need to be connected to other people or nothing means anything and they fall into despair. Mm-hmm. And part of the way we create lives that have meaning is serving something larger than us. That's mm-hmm. what Viktor Frankl said. Mm-hmm. It's how we, we always have a choice how we react to anything that's happening to us, including being in a concentration camp. Mm-hmm. And we have, a, 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 we have the opportunity to make a life of meaning through how we serve. Well, and going back to the boundaries thing, because, you know, like I have to do this because people will like to email me on Friday afternoons or Friday evenings. And I, at that point I'm done. And so I've actually with the swim team created an autoresponder that some people really hate. I love it. It's changed my (laughs) life. But, um, and in there I have a lot of boundaries, right? And I, and I say, I started this as an experiment and I go, you know, on the weekends, I don't check my emails you know, and, um, and I explain kind of what an email emergency would be. And, and then, um, I have like kind of like the 10 most frequently asked questions that usually come to me via email. And basically if these are one of the questions that you're asking, you I will consider your email answered. Right. right. And, um, and it's interesting because some people think it's brilliant and some people hate it. Mm-hmm. And, but it has made a huge difference for me and for me to give myself permission because it's like, you know, that Friday night email comes in and you're like, oh, they're asking a question. I must answer it. And I'm like, Corinne, you are not Google. Right. right? And you're yeah. not the last dog, right? You don't have to start salivating just because the email came in. So if, when people are doing things to change the world, right, and they're helping or doing volunteer stuff or whatever it is that you're, you know, how you give meaning and purpose. There are going to be people that are going to be demanding. They're going to expect. They're going to have this manual. And then it's about you, again, reinforcing your fence post. Like, is this like, is this Friday night email a crisis that needs to be addressed right now? Or can I, can I let people know that I don't take emails on the weekends, but I'll come back and I'll re-answer it on Monday morning? Absolutely. It's a huge, huge part of learning to serve is deciding what you care about and being humble to learn before you leap in with your solutions and ideas to learn hmm what is really needed here it may not look sexy or may not but 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 is it fulfilling to me and serving is it fulfilling to me and serving and then to have the boundaries about it my mother-in-law um and father-in-law are living on the island um near us for 2 years and they moved to be with us partly because they needed to get out of their big house and they needed just something to light a fire under them to make the transition. But part of it was that she was in so many commitments for volunteer work and she couldn't say no. So by moving, she was able to get out of them. Mm-hmm. 
And when she said that to me, I'm like, Sue, you have got to be kidding me. You have got to learn to say, no, I'm done. Mm -hmm. I've done enough. Mm-hmm. And no one's going to be happy when you do that, right? Mm-hmm. Because so many, so many, there's so many causes. There's so many ways to give. It's not a, you can, we can't look outside of ourselves and say, oh, I didn't, I made you unhappy. That must mean I should, I should rip, uh, capitulate and say, oh, no, it's okay. I'll keep doing it. No, nope, I'm done. And it's not, it's not ideal, but oh, well, nothing is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I think that boundaries, because that's one of the things that you're talking about. How can we take care of ourselves? Those that that's important. Be able to take care of yourself because you cannot give what you don't have. Well, you also can't keep giving. So when you're not taking care of yourself and you're in service, then eventually you're either going to break down and and maybe create more of a mess because people will become dependent on you and they need you in that organization, or you're going to start giving from that place of know it all. I know best. <laughs> um, we've seen that, you know. And that it's it, it can do more harm than good often, or we're doing it from a place of, of um, resentment, and that also creates problems. You know how many um, how many times have we seen someone serving from a place of resentment? This is kind of a silly story, but we don't have homeless people on our island because it's an island. You know, mm-hmm. it's like you, there's just hard to get here. So occasionally, though, we'll have somebody um, who's homeless asking for food outside the grocery store. And it's always kind of like, whoa, how did you get here? Did you come on the ferry? Um, How are you going to get back? Do you have money to get back? Um, So one day there was a woman and she was um, outside the grocery store and we had just come out with groceries. I said, well, Lily, let's let's look in our groceries and take her over something to eat. So we brought her some, I don't know if it was like strawberries or something with strawberry in it. And she looked at me, she said, I don't like strawberries. And I said, okay, well, what'd you like? And she said, well, I'd, I'd like an apple. Um, so we went back to the grocery cart and we brought her apple. And then we were in the car and Lily was like, mom, I just can't believe that. She should just take anything. And I said, well, whoa, you know, why? Do you lose your right to have preferences when you're poor? Ooh. And homeless? I mean, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. But why should I immediately judge her and say, no, you have to eat the strawberries because that's what I gave you the first time. And I think that's kind of the thing that we get into when we don't have boundaries. We get into a lot of shoulds and resentment and it gets harder to serve and harder to see what's really needed. No, I mean, yeah. Well, and I think when you have boundaries that allows you again, to you know, to stay awake and mm-hmm. to see what's going on, right? Because when you talk about compassion wow. fatigue, it's just, we're so overwhelmed because we don't have boundaries. So we don't want to look at anything else. No, we certainly don't want to look at big issues like climate change that require us to change really big things about how we live, how we fly, how we use resources, where we invest our money. I mean, that is huge. I've just gone through divesting from uh, energy companies. This is not easy to do. You can't have money in mutual funds. Mutual funds go in and out of energy stocks. They go in and out of stocks all day. You don't have any idea what you're, you know, and you can invest in very clean green funds, but that's limited too, depending on how much, you know, my retirement, this is my retirement money. Mm -hmm. So I've been going back and forth, you know, how do I do it? How do I divest? How can I be talking about climate change and still be investing in the companies that are profiting from producing energy that is being produced in a way that's sending us over the edge. Mm -hmm. So that's gross and hard. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to look at that. Took me, I think a year and a half to finally face up to it and do it. Mm -hmm. Well, and that brings a really important point as we close. Um, My husband had read this book about this really big company that we're all really well, well aware of. And um, the the values of the workplace culture really. Would that be Amazon we're talking about? (laughs) It really conflict with our personal values. Yes. And um, and I'm a prime member, right? Mm-hmm. And so he read this book and he said, Corinne, we, we have to stop buying stuff from them because of how they treat their employees, because that's an important value for us. And um, and I need to read the book because that that's really important to me to learn about that. And then the other, but I've noticed that I it's like you, it's this year and a half. Mm-hmm. My purchasing has gone way, way down. Right before it was like, oh, here's this is really easy. It's easier than driving around the corner to go to the store to go to Target, but that conflicts with my values, right? And so, but it's in, and that's where I'm. I'm. This is I'm just trying to put this out for the listeners of. Sometimes when we make change, it's these small steps that we take. 
And we right. take them, we, t- we did the same thing with Amazon. There was, there's a great article, if you Google it, about this, in The Guardian, that they, they, one of their reporters worked for Amazon to see what it was like in Wales. And really horrific. And it's also what they're doing to their suppliers. When, if you are manufacturing something and someone's pressuring you to make it cheaper and cheaper, what do you think that does to your business, to the people you employ, and to the world economy as a whole? It's not just about books by any long shot. So we, we've been having this conversation too, but we would keep occasionally ordering something and it was so easy. And finally, we couldn't do it anymore. And we stopped and we have ordered nothing from Amazon in, I think, about seven months. Wow. But at first it was really hard and I would go to buy it. Like, you know, you go online and it comes up for anything you search for. And it's mm-hmm. maybe a dollar cheaper. It's $5 cheaper. It's 30 cents cheaper. And if I buy this and this, it's free shipping. I, I'm not an Amazon Prime member, but, um, you know, it's even little things. Like my ex-husband's like, oh, I'll give you my Amazon Prime login information. You can stream that TV show. And we're like, no. Oh, God, I really want to watch that TV show. No. It's hard. And it took us a while to do it, too. So it's that process of waking up with so much compassion and tenderness, but not the compassion and tenderness that then lets you off the hook. Mm-hmm. That's what I see a lot of people do in the personal growth world. Well, I'm being compassionate with myself, so it's okay that I keep buying from Amazon. It's like, no, I think you're hiding. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and and I think it, I mean, it does take time, right? And yes, it like, does. It does. You know, one of the things, because I know my Prime membership's coming up, and this I've only known about this, I don't know, in the last four months maybe. So that that is something that I, it's in the back of my head going, okay, am I really going to re-up my Prime? Probably not, right? But I need to sit down with this, and I really do need to go read that book. But when it really conflicts with my values, because how do I live it? How do you live it? This is what we're talking about. How do we have the boundaries and the self-care to live our values? Ooh, that's really good. How do we have the boundaries and the self-care to live our values? Instead of defaulting to what's easy or the cultural story of I have to do it this way, so then therefore I don't have a choice. Whenever we think we don't have a choice, we're doing a disservice to ourselves and to a sense of greater meaning and connection and building a life that really matters. We all say we want a life that matters. We all say we want when we die to go, I mattered. But are we willing when the rubber hits the road to do the things that matter? They're not glamorous giving up our Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) And it doesn't make life easier, right? I mean, especially when you live on an island, having Amazon is probably a beautiful thing. It is. It's like, oh, I need my vitamins. Look, I can get them all here. I don't have to go to five different places. I'm going to save, you know, $40 a month doing this. Wow. But I can't be party to a company that's hurting the world, not just, you know, it's, it's, it's not good what they're doing. And it's no different than what Walmart's doing. And lots mm-hmm. of intellectuals have no problem saying, oh, I don't shop at Walmart. Mm-hmm. Walmart and Amazon are doing the exact same thing. That's exactly what my husband said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it was one of those things where, you know, again, it's been slowly over time because at first I was like, no, this makes my life easier, right? Plus I can save money. But over time, it, it so conflicts with my values because how workplace organizations work, how we, you know, the fact that we are all connected, you know, and when, we, when you talk about how can you change the world, right? If this is one small thing that I can do, then why not do it? But it's not small. When we do these kinds of changes, we change the culture. It's mm-hmm. like you not going to the basketball game. Mm-hmm. And, and doing it in a responsible, loving way. It's like, oh, you don't know what another mom might be like. Oh, my God, I am totally exhausted. And I don't have time, for example, to make healthy meals that are more plant-based mm-hmm. that help, you know, the more that, you know, I eat meat, I need meat for my body, but meat's really hard on the planet. It should be a luxury item. It should be a luxury item. We shouldn't be eating it every day, especially not beef. So, wow, but I'm too busy. So we have to eat fast food or we have to eat things that are really fast to cook. But if I'm not going to every game, maybe you become a role model for that woman who then is able to, you know, make healthier, more plant-based meals for her family. And that creates change. Or people listening to this are going to be like, oh, man, I better look into the whole Amazon thing. I better search mm-hmm. The Guardian for that Amazon article. I'll have that in the, the show notes. Oh, yeah. I'll send it to you. <laughs> it's easy to find. Um, you know, or I'm really going to look at Naomi Klein's book about climate change. Or I'm really going to look at, like, what are 10 things I can do to lighten my carbon footprint? I'm going to give some money to 350.org, which is doing incredible work around climate change justice. And climate change justice, what it means is we as Westerners and United States, Europe, um, have used up, have created far more of the climate um, 
disturbances. We've created the carbon, but it's impacting countries like Bangladesh. Um, the countries who have not created the carbon are being impacted first and, and most profoundly, and poor countries, Africa. So climate change justice is about saying, oh, wait, this isn't fair. <laughs> we, need to, we need to do something about this. And there's lots of ways that we can address it. And some of them, of course, are governmental, um, gigantically so, like we see with Obama and the China deal that just came out this week. Yeah, that's something I don't know much about. So yeah, that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> I just invite everybody to learn about it and to practice this idea of boundaries. What? Okay, so if I'm not, if I'm going to learn about climate change, what am I going to stop taking in to my system so I can take care of myself and stay balanced? Mm-hmm. The other thing I see, Corinne, is a story a little bit, and and I may make people angry saying this, but I see a little bit of a story sometimes of a hothouse flower. I'm too fragile to take in the news of the world and to take action. It's too hard. I think we're really resilient. I think if we were living during World War II, we would be the people who were Rosie the Riveter. We would be the people who were selling war bonds and knitting socks for the the guys overseas. We're resilient and strong, and we need to tap into that. And as personal growth pioneers and leaders, we need to help people tap into that. No, I, I definitely agree with you. I definitely think we are resilient. Um, I do think there's appropriate news news sources, and there are some that uh, just you yes. know heighten Stay things. Stay away from those. Turn off CNN. <laughs> so, so I think it's important to know, like, where are you getting your information from? Is it just an escalation, you know, because it bleeds, it leads, or are you getting information where you can make, you know, um, make decisions like what we've been talking about, like of what is important to you when in in understanding those resources. So so important. So important. Are you just getting your news from Facebook? Yeah. There's 38% of people are now. Yeah. And so, and paying attention to that and, and, and where do you, what do you, so I guess it goes back to like, where are your values and what's really important and how, how can you in your life change the world and make an impact to make it a better place? Yeah. And ways that lights you up, that makes mm-hmm. you excited. You can tell from this conversation how excited I am about doing something about climate change. It doesn't feel onerous to me. I mean, sometimes it feels depressing. And Bob and I then, I read a fiction book, <laughs> <laughs> right? I, you know, I, I know my limits and I know, I know that I'm human. I've embraced my humanity. It's not up to me. It's not on my shoulders. It's something I'm engaged in because I care about and I believe about and believe in it. But I know I'm just one tiny squeak in the whole symphony hopefully of change that's 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 mustering well jen thank you so much for coming on and talking about this because i think it's an important thing and we talked about you know a variety of ways for people to get involved right and the things that they need to do so that it can be sustainable Mm -hmm. right and it doesn't have to be all or nothing or we don't have to you know hide away from it but how can we see what's going on and really make it make a difference in the world so thank you oh my pleasure All right, so as I wrap up the show today, I invite you to think about how you can change the world. What's in line with your strengths, your values, and your priorities, right? Climate change is really, really something that Jen's passionate about. Maybe that doesn't fit in your life. Maybe, you know, and just like some people, going to Africa is really, really something that's important to people. It doesn't fit in my life because of where I am currently. I'm not saying I won't be there, I don't know if that that's in my future or not. But one of the things that I had to um, get comfortable with was I live in Northern California. My facts are I'm married, I have kids, we're, and we're committed to growing up in this community. So with that, how can I change the world? And I invite you to think about that in terms of your life, right? You heard about Jen and how she wants to do it. You heard a bit about what I do, whether it's this radio show, working with my clients, the aqua monsters that I run or talking to the uh, clerk and the bagger at the checkout line at the grocery store, right? How is it that you want to show up? And we also, you also heard us talk about businesses that we want to do business with, right? So there's many different ways. It doesn't have to be, oh my gosh, I have to do this and it's all in. And then also rethinking about the boundaries, right? How, what are the boundaries that, so that you can fill yourself back up so that you can show up and be of service in your life. Those are things to think about. There's no right or wrong ways. And remember, we can always learn. And the thing I invite you to do is test it out and circle back 
and figure out what you can do better. It's just practicing, right? We practice it. We, are, we give ourselves permission that we may screw it up. Hopefully it's a low risk situation or a low risk situation. And then we practice it again, right? We tweak. That is how growth happens. That is how learning happens. That is how change happens. All right. So love to hear what your thoughts are on the show. And also feel free to drop an iTunes review that helps the show. And you can sign up for my weekly newsletter at www.howshereallydoesit.com. On a lake, she is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so wide awake.